0: All right, if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning. Lost one, had a straggler. Please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are looking this morning at verses 1 through 16. This is Ephesians 4. 1 to 16, this is God's word for us, his people, this morning. It says this, this is Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would speak the truth to us and that by your Spirit you would transform us. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name, amen. This section marks a major transition in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. In the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has largely reflected on what is true. He has been reflecting on uh, these great sort of truths that this church has been organized around the very heart and essence of the gospel. He has reminded them again and again that in Christ... God has gathered them out of sin, he has torn down every dividing wall, and he has gathered them together into a beloved community, the church. Now, in chapter 4, and for the rest of Paul's letter, Paul is going to focus on what life in this beloved community looks like. He's gone from what is true, and in chapters 4 to 6, he's going to focus on what to do as God's... People. And today, Paul's special focus is on growth towards maturity. This is a passage about growth towards maturity in the gospel. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at five things Paul tells us about maturity, a five point sermon. Because why not? Uh, We'll go through these relatively briefly. Don't Don't get too worried. Here's our first point, thinking about maturity in Christ. Maturity is holistic. It is holistic, by which I mean it transforms every part of us. You see that in verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are meant to grow up in every way. And what that means, and we actually see this in the rest of these verses, that our hearts are transformed as we grow in maturity. And our wills are transformed as we grow in maturity. And our minds are transformed as we grow in maturity. Look at uh, heart. Uh, hearts are, our Hearts are what we love what we desire. And you see desires reflected all through this section. In verse 2, Paul says, we should have humility and gentleness and patience. These are postures of the heart. Paul is saying, your hearts are going to be changed as you grow in maturity. In verse 3, he says, you should be eager to maintain unity. Eagerness is a heart posture. It is a desire. We are eager to maintain unity. Our hearts are transformed. What we love, what we desire is transformed. We grow in those things as we grow in Christ. Also our wills, what we choose, uh, which would be our behavior. What we choose is transformed as we grow in maturity. Again, you see this reflected throughout the passage when he says we should bear with one another in love. That is a choice. That is a behavior. Bearing with one another as opposed to fighting with one another is a choice. It is part of our will. Same thing in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. That is a behavior That is part of how we grow and change and transform in Christ. And behavior is important, but part of what I'm trying to help us see here is that behavior is not the only thing that matters. Jesus isn't just changing our behavior as we grow in Christ. He is changing also what we love and how we think. Those are important things for us to consider as well. We are called to speak the truth in love. I could preach a whole sermon series probably on speaking the truth in love, but for now I'll just simply note that both truth and love go together. They have to go together. To speak the truth without love is harshness and cruel. And to have love without truth is delusion. It is it leads us into Falsehood, truth, and love must go together. That is one of the things as we grow in maturity, we grow into. But also, our minds are transformed as we grow in maturity. You see that like in verse 14. He says, um, "...so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine." by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Part of growing in maturity as a Christian is growing in discernment, being able to not be tossed about by the winds and the waves of the world around us, not being anxious people, not uh, not worrying that the kingdom is always about to fall based on how things in the world are going. We grow in discernment, we grow in wisdom, so that we are not deceived easily. Cunning schemes do not work on mature followers of Jesus. We are transformed in every part of our being as we grow in maturity. Our our hearts, our wills, our minds. Because growing in maturity is holistic. Here's the second thing. Growing in maturity is a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's helpful to note in verse 1 that Paul says we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We are called to walk, not to arrive. That's an important distinction. We are always called to be walking. The, the picture there, the metaphor there is, is a picture of a journey. We are called to be walking, to be traveling. At no point do we stop walking. We are always called to walk. And he says, we walk like that, and then you get down to verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And if you're thinking, are we there yet? The answer is no. And if you're thinking, man, that's going to take forever, you're getting warmer. It will take forever. The pursuit of maturity is a lifelong endeavor for those who are in Christ. We never arrive at maturity. We never achieve maturity and then like we're done. And it's really important to note this again and again and again, because if you have this implicit idea that you are one day going to arrive at maturity and it's going to feel like you have arrived and you are done growing, or at least you are good enough, three things could happen if you do that. The first thing is you are deluding yourself, living in delusion. Friends, I have never met an immature person who thinks they are immature, you ever notice that? Mature people can tell you where they are still immature. Immature people think they are awesome. They're deluded. It's, it's this sort of a cruel backside, the insidiousness of immaturity is you tend to think you're mature. Mature people can tell you where they are still immature. If you think you can arrive at some point, you might just be deluded. The other thing you might end up doing is just deceiving people because you're faking it. You're faking this like outward maturity and this outward piety that isn't actually real. It's not coming from your heart. And so if you think you've arrived, or at least you feel like you've got to arrive, you might be tempted to fake it and hope nobody notices. It's exhausting. The third thing that can happen if you think you can arrive is despair, when it feels like you're never going to get there. If, if growing in the Christian life means I'm supposed to arrive at some point, that just doesn't feel like something that's going to happen to me, so maybe I'm not even really a Christian. And you can move between these three things if you think you're going to arrive one day at maturity. You can move between delusion and deception and despair back and forth at different times in your life. But the point here, I think one of the things that Paul is teaching us, is that maturity is a lifelong pursuit. We don't ever get the option of deciding we've grown enough and we're not going to do it anymore. In fact, the moment you do that, the moment you sort of decide that you're kind of good enough, the moment you do that, you actually become destructive to yourself and to others. Because part of our growth, part of our maturity, part of our following in the footsteps of Christ is that we are, every moment of our lives, open to the fact that we still have more to learn. We still have to grow. There is always more faith for us to have. There is always more sin lingering in our hearts that we must repent from. And our obedience can always go deeper and deeper into our hearts. We don't get the option of stagnating. We are called, as God's people, always to grow. Maturity is a lifelong pursuit. Here's the third thing. Maturity is a team sport. Growth and maturity is a team sport. You see that throughout this passage. In verse 2, Paul says, bear with one another. Now, the Bible doesn't usually command things that are super easy to do or pleasant. So when it says bear with one another, that means it's going to be hard. There are going to be things you're going to have to put up with in the body of Christ. That's why in verse 3 he says we need to be eager to maintain unity. Again, it's going to be easy for disunity to seep into the church and to fracture the church. And instead what Paul is saying is we need one another. We need to bear with one another. We need to maintain unity. We talked last week about how difficulty in the church is a feature, not a bug. Because it reminds us all of our need, our ongoing need For the gospel, we grow in the gospel as we live life together in Christ while continuing to wrestle with sin and its effects among us. So we are called to do this together. And so Paul even continues talking about how this is a a team sport. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says that God gave, or Christ gave, church leaders to help facilitate the growth of maturity in the church. He says, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds, which would also be the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God gave leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I think what's so important there is that we don't just read that as Paul, like God has given leaders to the church to train you guys to, to lead programs in the church. Uh, and that's sometimes how this is taken, but it's actually much deeper than that. It's much truer than that. It is, it is not just a training in techniques for leading church ministries. This equipping for the work of ministry means that your pastor's And your elders and your deacons and your ministry leaders are here to help us all learn to notice what God is doing. And to not only notice what God is doing, but to grow in our love, in our knowledge of what God is doing and of the gospel itself. And so part of what Paul is saying here that he gave leaders to build to equip the saints for the work of ministry is he is helping the people and the church to realize that no one is merely a consumer of religious goods and services here. No one is a consumer of religious goods and services. Instead, all of us together are God's plan for the world. We are meant together to be a picture of God's goodness and his grace In the world, we are meant together to be a picture of what the gospel looks like, lived out in the life of a people. We are meant together to be a picture of God's character. No consumers. We are all God's plan. And Paul says when this happens in verses 15 and 16, the body grows built up in love. And the love there is love for one another, certainly it's love for God, but it's also love for what is good and true and beautiful. And I think it's helpful for us to note that again, because so often we talk about the Christian life as if it's really merely about avoiding what's bad. But Paul is saying the church is built up in love for one another, for God, and what is true and good and beautiful in the world. I learned a cool word uh, in one of the classes I took in my uh, doctoral studies, and the cool word is heliotropic. It's a pretty cool word, isn't it? Does anyone know what that means? Any gardeners who know what that means? Sunflowers are heliotropic. Heliotropic means they track the sun. And one of the points of this class I was taking is that we so often spend our lives, especially in the church and in organizations, thinking about how to fix what's wrong, that we just assume that fixing what's wrong actually makes things healthy and good. And the point is, that's not necessarily the case. You can spend your whole life fixing what's wrong, but never actually being healthy. You know, you can go to the doctor to get pills to treat the symptoms of what's going on in your body, but that never makes you healthy. You never actually have health. And so part of the point of this class is we grow towards what we notice. We grow towards what we ask questions about. We grow towards what we study. And part of what Paul is calling us to here is the church is being built up in love As he is calling us to notice what God is doing. He is calling us to study what God is doing so that we can grow towards that, not just avoid the things that are bad or destructive. And Paul goes on making this point again and again. In verse 16 he says that all of this happens also when each part is working properly. And part of what that means is that when we talk about growing together as a church, it doesn't sort of decimate the importance of individual maturity. What he's saying, rather, is that individual maturity matters to the health of the whole church. So we want to see the whole church grow in maturity. And part of the way we do that is by pursuing our own maturity, what this means is like our holiness, our righteousness, our obedience, our faith and our repentance affects the whole church. Our individual obedience to Christ affects the whole church. Our individual maturity affects the whole church. Paul says this happens as each part works properly, which again helps us realize we're not all supposed to be the same. God has given a diversity of people to his church, people from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures and classes. He has given a diversity of people, but he's also given a diversity of gifts. He makes that point in verse 7. Grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're not all supposed to look the same. We're not all supposed to be the same. The the variety of people in the church is the point. It's part of how we grow in maturity. C.S. Lewis captures this really beautifully in his book, The Four Loves. And in one section in that book, he is reflecting on the death of one of his close friends, another uh, author named Charles Williams. And uh, Williams and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, as well as some other authors, were part of a group called The Inklings, and they all shared writing together and were friends and close and just loved being in life together. And so as Charles Williams dies, Lewis reflects on what that means for the whole group. And I think this is so beautiful. He says, "...in each of my friends..." There is something that only some other friends can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, that's Tolkien, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of him. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's a picture of what what this body of Christ is meant to be. We are meant to draw things out of one another that we couldn't do on our own. And part of what this means is that God has given us one another. He has given us one another that we might be more truly ourselves. That all of us might be called out of ourselves. That that we might be fully and truly what God has made us to be. We need one another in the church. The beloved community both requires, but it also fosters maturity. And part of what that means is that the church is not optional. For God's people. We cannot grow to maturity alone. We cannot go our own way. We need one another in the body of Christ. Maturity is a team sport. Here's my fourth point. Fourth point. Maturity is primarily about appropriating what we already have, not gaining What we lack. It is primarily about appropriating what we already have, not gaining what we lack. Here's what I mean Paul is not commanding us in these verses to go and heroically manufacture maturity in ourselves. He's not saying, Go, you lack maturity, go and be better. What he is saying is, Go and grow into what you already have. Don't go and build what you lack. Go and grow into what you already have. And that's why Paul, over and over again in these verses, emphasizes what we already have and what God has given to us. In verse 1, he says, Remember, walk in a, a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called by God. That's something we already have. He says you have been called to one hope. Again, something God has done for us. In verse 7, he says, Grace was given to you. Grow into this grace. In verse 11, he talks about the leaders that have been given to God's people in order that they might grow. So maturity is not about going and building something we don't have, but growing deeper into what God has already given us, which is his grace in Christ. And so as we think about motivation, or as we think about maturity, we also have to think about motivation. And our motivation for growth and maturity is not a deficit, it's not what we lack, but it is actually God's grace. We are motivated to pursue maturity by God's grace. If we miss that distinction, uh, it looks a few different ways. Uh, If we think we're motivated by lack instead of grace, we will focus on fruit in our lives instead of the root by which fruit is even produced. By that I mean, if we think uh, that we are motivated by what we lack, we're going to be tempted to focus on, you know, how well am I doing X? How well am I doing Y? Am I patient? Am I more patient than I was? Uh, Do I have, you know, these fruits of the Spirit? Do I have humility and gentleness and patience? Am I eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? I'm going to focus on the fruit... As opposed to focusing on the root, which is Christ himself, who produces all fruit. That's the whole point of like John 15, where Christ calls himself the true vine, and apart from, apart from him, we can't do nothing, uh, is how he puts it in the Greek, uh, which has like a triple negative that we lose in the English. Apart from me, y'all can't do nothing. So again, uh, if, we, if we're focused on lack, we focus on fruit. If we're focused on grace, we're focused on root. If we focus on lack, we focus on progress. Uh, let's say uh, my sin is primarily saying bad words. Well, uh, you know, last year I said bad words on average of 10 times a day, and this year uh, it's nine times a day uh, progress, growth. Whereas if I'm motivated by grace... In my pursuit of maturity, I focus on my position. I am in Christ. I am already a beloved child of God with whom he is well pleased. He doesn't expect me to clean myself up before I come to him. He has already welcomed me with open arms in Christ. Similarly, if I am motivated by lack, I will think that I am waiting on some great breakthrough ahead of me. Maybe you've felt this in your lives. You keep thinking, like, at some point in the future, I'm going to finally get over the hump on this sin. Like, this is no longer going to be the thing I struggle with. At some point in the future, I'm going to love eating healthy food and exercising. (laughs) A grace motivation reminds us that we're not waiting on a breakthrough ahead of us. The greatest of all breakthroughs is behind us, which is the death and the resurrection Of Jesus. We have all that we need to grow in maturity, and He is transforming us from the inside out. One last contrast here. Uh, If we are motivated by lack for pursuing maturity, we will tend to be obsessed with the quality or the quantity of our own faith. We will constantly be worried that we haven't believed strongly enough to be saved. We'll be obsessed with evaluating our faith and worrying that we haven't believed strongly enough. But if we're motivated by grace and pursuing maturity, we're not focused on our faith, but on our Savior. We're focused on Christ himself, who is the one who grows us in life. Those distinctions come from a great book called True Devotion by Alan Chappell uh, that's been really transformative uh, in my own thinking, and I actually I have the officer uh, candidates read through it uh, in the officer training process. I just didn't want you to think I was that insightful myself. <laughs> the point here is that growing in grace is really about appropriating what we already have, not building or manufacturing what we lack. Fifth point, which is by far the quickest All of this, growth and maturity happens in Christ. Growth and maturity happens in Christ. Which means at the end of the day, any achievement in maturity is not actually our achievement. Maturity itself comes in the Christian life by grace. God is the one working it into us, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Which is why Paul ends where he does in verses 15 and 16. He says, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now there's commas and clauses in there so that it's easy to miss what Paul actually just said. I'll cut out the commas and clauses. Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus is the one who is doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit in and among us. We are being conformed to his image. That's what maturity is, gross into Christ-likeness. So friends, I'm going to leave you this morning with a reflection question for you. And I'm going to try to make it a heliotropic question reflection question, which is this, where is God at work in you and among us, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ? Where is God at work in you and among us here at Heritage, conforming you and us more and more to Christ's image? I'm asking you to notice what God is doing in you and in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only call us out of darkness and bring us into your glorious light, but you are at work in us each and every day, building us up individually and together conforming us more and more to the image of Christ and Lord we pray that you would continue that work here this morning be at work in us help us to grow in maturity help us to see that as a lifelong pursuit one that we strive after knowing that Christ is the one at work in us. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us and that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us in the truth and the reality of Christ's work on our behalf. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Friends, this meal is meant to remind us of what Christ has done. It reminds us.